Welcome to Drone Futures, a series about how drones are reshaping how the world is perceived, how people are governed, and how power is enacted and resisted. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, a researcher on drones, war and culture at the University of New South Wales. Drone Futures is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bedigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and Indigenous lives. In this bonus episode, we're sharing a discussion with Associate Professor Ronak Kekapadia from the Gender and Women's Studies Program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Ronak gave a talk titled On the Skin, Drone Warfare, Collateral Damage, and the human terrain. This is the Q&A that followed, conducted live on Zoom with questions offered by the audience via chat. Thank you so much, Ranak, for a really um, beautiful and um, urgent presentation. Um, really appreciate it. And I know just from having glanced in and out of the the chat on YouTube a little bit as you were as you were talking that uh, that that the audience has um, has been super engaged and really interested. And there's already a few um, really fantastic questions there. Um, there's a lot, and there's lots of virtual claps coming in too. Um, I'll, I'll add, which is like the hard thing. You know, we were talking before um, Ronak started that the hard thing is is how you um, feeling the audience in this in this kind of environment. So thank you for. Uh, um, thank you for all those those virtual claps. Um, what I've been talking about, the sort of devoid of the sensuousness, right, is that, you know, these virtual platforms, part of what Bilan and I think Slavic are doing is trying to reanimate the senses in a way, despite all of our virtual digital divides. Um, so, and the sun has set here, as you can see, I hope my lighting is okay. And carry on, Michael, please. Oh, it looks great. Um, so, you know, on that note, actually, um, I think I'd, I'd like to pick up with a, from a, from a question that, um, that was, popped up in the chat um, a bit earlier, uh, which is from um, uh, my friend and colleague, Anna Munster, who writes, um, who just said, you know, and maybe this is a kind of half provocative question is, which is just like, what if bodies um, in the way that you've been talking about them and in, and in perhaps in the way um, many of us care about them just don't, just don't matter anymore to, from the view of those uh, in the air, um, particularly in the air of, of drone war. Yes, I mean, what a provocative and important question because so much of the discourse, at least the dominant discourse of unmanned remote warfare is about the, 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 the fact that fleshiness is, is devoid, right? That the fleshiness of the human is dissolved and no more. It's partly, at least in the argument of during the Obama era was about the surgical precision of drone warfare is about um, limiting the so-called collateral damage of, of, you know, of boots on the ground, for example. And of course, you know, for those of us who paid attention and studied the actual effects, the disorganizing and disaggregating effects of drone warfare in AFPAC or throughout the greater Middle East, the sea, um, that actually, no, there are still all these devastations that have deeply human consequences of life and death, of maiming, of disorganizing, disordering, um, communal ways of being, right, in, in the frontiers of U.S. political violence and U.S. Um, sort of forever wars. And of course, we also know that drone creep is happening and the drone technology has been sold now all over the world. And that, you know, here in my city of Chicago, the South and West side is soon to be policed, not by the helicopters, the police had helicopters, which already exist, but by those unmanned drones 
that are being piloted from you know the U.S.-Mexico border and being brought to cities like Chicago and Minneapolis and Milwaukee and wherever else there has been so much unrest and, and uprising this year. Um, and there are bodies on the ground. There are bodies in communities and histories that are completely disordered, um, despite the fact that the state would like to think um, that the, the, hu the human is no more, that we've moved to a kind of non-human future. And so I think part of why I turn to the minoritarian cultural worker and why I want to attend to fleshiness and the haptic and the tactile is to say, no, we need to reanimate, we need to repopulate the senses that the state wants us to um, um, go along with an idea of the kind of machinic assemblage that is the drone. And so the art worker, the minoritarian artist in pain is a kind of antidote and a counterpoint to that. It's a, it's a reminder to us that we're not yet at that non-human non future um, that the state would like to imagine for us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that's a that, that it's an important reminder. And I think particularly, um, as you would know, in, in so much of the um, uh, academic work on drone warfare, and I think even in some of the the critical work outside the academy, there can be this reflexive um, notion that that it's in, that it's um, that we're already there, and that uh, resistance is is difficult, if not futile. Um, yeah. And and in fact, um, that seems not to be the case. And uh, you know, um, the fissures and failures and faults of um, of uh, of drone warfare are are um, important to pry open and, and pressing upon more, and I think you put that really beautifully in in your book. I was really struck right at the start of your talk, or very early in, the, in your talk, um, you mentioned um, the need to kind of or an emerging politics that seeks to redistribute breath. And I wondered, I mean, we might be veering into where your work is going now, um, <laughs> rather than rather than where it's been. But but I wondered, um, you know, whether that idea of, of of a politics that redistributes breath fits into what you've just been talking about 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 the need for um for uh, a um, a reconfiguration or a reemergence of the sensorial in response to this kind of politics. Well, it's it's certainly breath and breathing is certainly on the is the topic at hand on so many people's minds now in the context of COVID certainly, um, but I think in the aftermath, at least in the United States, of um, the death of Eric Gardner and Michael Brown and the emergence of Black Lives Matter, the the discussion about you know not being able to breathe of Black people literally being suffocated by the state and its policing apparatus, which of course is a long story. It's the story of the new world and of the terrorization of black and indigenous peoples in the new world. Um, but that that reanimated around 2014, 2015. And one of the things I've been doing in research for my second book project that I've been working on that was called, or at least provisionally is called Breathing in the Brown Queer Commons. <laughs> I might have to rethink that title now uh, based on what's happened, of course, this year, was looking at the role of breath, breathing, healing, and the embodiment as quite central to liberationist struggles. And rather than, and try to think about it as collective survival and care as being the work of radical social movements, as opposed to the thing that happens on the side. And so, you know, the project sort of started as an antidote or reflexive uh, reaction to the language of self-care and the way that self-care was being imagined and circulated as this neoliberal individuated automated thing that we do, comrade go to the spa on the weekend, right? As opposed to what we know from the history of black and indigenous and women of color feminisms here in North America, that there's actually a long history of collective forms of care and collective forms of healing. And so what if we think about healing as the modality through which to understand what movement work is about, and in the process of all that, of course, I've been interested in uh, Black Studies work, the work of Ashawn Crowley, Christina Sharp, you know, people who've been talking about breath and breathing as a metaphor for flight, 
and as a metaphor for freedom, and that the restriction and constriction of breath, of course, is um, a historical uh, phenomenon that was crucial to torture regimes on the plantation. So literally constricting the, 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 the lung capacity of the enslaved person was a way of um, you know, maintaining a kind of plantation hierarchy and structure in the context of slavery. And so there's these long roots of that, right? So breath, breathing, respiration, and now there's a whole new sort of subfield of breathing studies of people and a newer generation of scholars who are informed by affect studies and by um, certainly all the work in sensory studies to think about breathing anew again. Um, so how does that relate to this topic? Well, I, you know, I am reminded that you know the Bilal piece that I talked about here is a decade old. It was in an earlier moment in YouTube's history and the history of you know all of these social media platforms that have completely taken over our lives. And you know when Wafa did the cyborg creation and had the camera on the back of his head, um, you know the Wall Street Journal wrote articles about it, and it was quite controversial. And of course, it was to call attention to the increasing encroachment of surveillance and privacy issues in the early Obama years. We've moved far afield from that a decade later. It's and it feels like a it feels like a historical piece more than anything in some sense. But I think some of the questions around performance and performativity, liveness that he was trying to get at and counting, um, are useful for us now, right? Like, what does it mean to be have a virtual event that's live and not and not pre-recorded? What does it mean to be in space with other people to commune and to mourn collectively? to gather collectively in a space, certainly that has changed in the context of 2020. Um, so some of those early questions that he was asking in 2010 have come back to us anew and I think freshly um, force us to sort of engage with questions about performance, about liveness, about what collective reckoning and mourning will mean um, as we move forward, as we try to think through the ends of the forever wars, right? Um, so that's how what I would say long-winded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, just on just picking up further on this um, this idea of of breath, um, uh, my my colleague Adam Fish, um, you know, writes that uh, regarding breath, um, how about the use of leaf blowers in Hong Kong and Portland to blow back tear gas um, as a kind of ephemeral, aesthetic, and pragmatic um, atmospheric intervention? And um, that kind of builds on an earlier question that that Adam had about, um, you know, is insurgent activism of the kind that you, you kind of addressed in the talk and, and described in the book, um, is that a, are there, are there other modes of kind of atmospheric um, activism or act atmospheric intervention? Absolutely. And, you know, in the book project, the epilogue looks at the sort of scalar dimensions of various insurgent practices and looks at, um, you know, it was written in the summer of 2018, I suppose now, in the moment of the Trump baby balloon protests that were happening in the UK. And I try to connect that to the long, you know, magisterial work of people like Karen Kaplan, who've given us a long history of thinking about aerial balloon technologies, views from above. What does it mean to think about, you know, insurgent views from above, right? Um, I don't ever get into a place where we think that, you know, that from below or on the skin is the resistant sort of, and, you know, resistance side and that the from above is always the tactic of the state. State It doesn't work that, that well. And I think what the art shows is that it's much more complicated and that we can have actually insurgent views from above as well. But I should step back and say, what do I mean by insurgency? You know, part of 
I use the language of insurgency is both to hail the language of the Muslim terrorist and the way that that circulates within within the West, but it's also you know um, to sort of hail the long history of subterranean and fugitive consciousness of insurgent struggle, what Ruthie Gilmore calls infrastructures of feeling against the forces of empire, gender, racial capitalism. Um, so that's a way of saying, can we suture the work of these contemporary Arab and Muslim and South Asian diaspora cultural workers in the long history of primarily black and native led rebellion against the um, sort of dominant security paradigm in the new world from 1492 to the present, right? So the forever war is not a post 9-11 formation. We know that we have to actually embed our discussion of contemporary security logics and resistance struggles within that longer history. And so that's part of what I'm trying to gesture at with the language of insurgency. And, you know, I see this, um, this question here about the fact that the right the, the political right in specifically in the North American and European context, and I imagine in other uh, white settler colonies around the world, had the right has been particularly adroit at uh, mobilizing affects, right? Consolidating political power through the role of affects. And I think that's absolutely true. And it's something that the left, um, we're seeing that today in the context of discussions about settling for Biden, right? <laughs> the Democratic Party's decision-making that um, when offered um, lush, new, compelling, innovative, structurally substantive interventions, our oppositional party will always choose the centrist, bland, middle of the road, carceral solution to um, the thinking about, you know, the, the here and now. And um, so, yeah, the left broadly defined has a lot of work to do about um, securing and conquering affect to the same degree. And there's certainly no political primacy that the right or the left has about affect. We know that the affect is the way affect circulates. It can be mobilized um, towards contradictory ends all the time. And so, again, I want to move away from the idea that there's a good, bad, black, white opposition, resistance, subordination binary. Uh, thanks so much, and, and thanks, um, Kit Mission Muir from uh, from Curtin University. Kit's been working on a on a project about um, the role of art in conflict um, for a while now. Um, really fantastic question. Earlier during during the talk, towards the end of the talk, um, Elise Swain in the chat had a really great um, question, which I think you know takes us back a little bit into into the space of theory. But um, but I think it but uh, it's it's asking you to expand a little bit on your term queer calculus. Yeah. Um, and what you mean by that term and what kind of intervention you think it makes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm thinking about calculus, as I said, about a cold accounting. Basically, what I'm thinking that, well, let me step back to say that, you know, part of why I am so invested in the language of queerness and the language of queer feminist analysis is because I think queer studies has the most supple and engaged um, discourse around affect, intimacy, the sensorium, around the utopian dimensions and emancipatory potential of art and aesthetics. It, it really gives us the, the most robust language historically to talk about this work. And so what was important to me as somebody who studied transnational American studies and wanted to engage with women of color and queer of color critique in graduate school and you know make that the forefront of the kind of theoretical engine behind my project was to say that how do we intervene in the kind of studies that have emerged about late modern warfare? Often a lot of the work around late modern warfare from drone technologies to carceral confinement to you know, the whole suite of uh, security and policing regimes tends to often have a kind of an unintentional effect of mimicking the terms and language and frames of debate of the dominant. 
And I wanted to go somewhere radically different, somewhere askew, somewhere askance, right? And so turning to the work of art and expressive culture, but then also mining the complexities and contradictions of that work, I realized that I really needed queer and feminist inquiry to be able to do that work. And that I wanted to intervene in the primarily um, straight discourse around um, critiques of late modern warfare and forever wars and actually say, no, queer studies has a lot to say about these questions, about the archive, about, about memory, about history, about touch um, and political violence writ large. So the idea of queer calculus, part of what I'm saying is that we know that our political imaginations have been deeply impoverished by the prevailing ways that we are forced to think about connectivity, collectivity, political violence, um, the way that uh, nation states should be connected in the world in the 21st century, and that we need a politics of refreshment, as I'm saying. We need a stranger calculus, another way of reading, right? So part of what queer calculus is offering us is a kind of alternative reading practice. And I mean calculus in three terms in the book, you know, I kind of laid out in the, in the very lengthy introduction, but briefly, I'm thinking about calculus both as a kind of logic or of reasoning as a form of systematicity and saying we need an alternative logic. And that's partly what I talked about today and tonight. Um, I also think about calculus in terms of it stretching the idea of calcification, calculus to calcification, to talk about the sedimentation of painful um, elements in the body. And so again, that's a way of prioritizing those somatic and sensorial dimensions of war making and its collateral effects. Um, so calculus here is about affect and, the, and embodiment. And then third, I try to talk about queer calculus as a kind of sensuous affiliation, the kinds of non-blood-based forms of affiliation that have emerged in the context of the forever wars, um, the kinds of unlikely coalitions and constellations of radical affinities that have emerged between, in my case, in the context of the book, Arabs and Muslims and South Asians in the diaspora, um, who we don't necessarily need to fold in together, but can actually talk about the kind of non-blood-based forms of affiliation that have emerged, which is also a kind of queer method, right? It's to say, how do we talk about affiliation that isn't about um, you know, blood and isn't about family? So those are the three ways in which I think queerness becomes really crucial to talking about calculus as about logics, affects, and affiliations. That's what I would say about the idea of queer calculus. Thank you. And uh, just on while we're on uh, terminology, um, Dan Bins from RMIT has asked um, uh, where you take the term um, forever war from, um, uh, which I, th I think you might have mentioned that you're, you're kind of drawing on um, Derek Gregory, right, in, in that articulation. But um, I'm wondering if you could say, you know, expand a little bit on, on how you see that term um, in your work. And, and I, I'm particularly interested perhaps in, in the time horizon that it um, expands indefinitely um, as a frame and, and what you think about kind of marshalling that um, that kind of language, because, you know, a question might be like, how does one ever get outside forever war if one accepts the... Yeah. Well, let me work backwards to say, you know, part of what I wanted to uh, juxtapose in the book project is, so first to say, forever war it comes out of science fiction. There are, there are been journalistic accounts that have used that language. Of course, there's Derek Gregory and, and other people within the world of kind of critical militarism studies. Um, there's also the language of the long war, which, you know, one of my mentors, Nikhil Paul Singh, uses the language of long war, which we get from Donald Rumsfeld to talk about the kind of incipient Cold War style, 21st century, long, um, geographically open project. So there's lots of different genealogies and I'm, I'm not invested in any tracing any one particular other than to say part of what interests me in the book project was I wanted to juxtapose the seemingly sort of durative nature of war making 
right? Um, the endless everywhere war that is, you know, expanded geographical boundaries, the unmanned nature of it that makes it everywhere and nowhere all at the same time with the seemingly um, ephemeral constellation of artists and activists that I'm bringing together um, in the book project, but also to talk about Arab Muslim South Asian, for example, that framework, it meant something very specific around 2003, 2004, 2000, in the early years of the war on terror in the United States, because it was a moment in which in the context of um, special registration and the deportations in the Bush era, early years of the Homeland Security State, where Arabs and Muslims and South Asians were being racialized in similar kinds of ways in, in North America for not the first time, but really, you know, in national public consciousness. And so that developed a kind of discussion about Arab Muslim South Asian, Southwest Asian, SWANA is another term, right? So all of these terms sort of emerged to talk about the racializing assemblages that were starting to develop as a result of um, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency wars. And so what I wanted to, and so of course, now the book's been published in 2019, 2020, Arab Muslim South Asian means something very different now. Brownness means something differently, right? You know, my other, my late mentor, Jose Esteban Munoz, his last posthumous book is coming out this fall. And it's called The Sense of Brown. And it's a way of theorizing the affective um, uh, logics of, of brownness as something other than identitarianism as a way of as a way of feeling as a structure of feeling right and we're following the Raymond tradition the Raymond Williams side of affect things here so um where was I so Arab Muslim South Asian meant something very distinct in the early 2000s than it does today and so what I wanted to sort of play through and experiment with in the book project is that can we talk about the the sort of juxtaposition of something that's seemingly ephemeral a constellation that emerges in a particular place in time and the seemingly derivative nature of war making but then also point to the sort of cracks and fissures and failures of the warfare state as you as you noted that's partly you know high frame the introduction and my discussion of Mawish Chishti in the introduction of my book is so much of about, you know, attending to the kind of glimmers and cracks, um, as opposed to buying into the uh, buying into the idea of the seemingly omniscient and durative nature of war making. Because how else will we get to the moment when war finally misses its mark, as, as Butler and other folks have talked about? Yeah, yeah thanks a lot. It's that, that those those fissures and failures are, are really interesting to me. I've I, I recently read uh, Kate Chandler's um, new book, Unmanning. Um, and Kate's um, speaking later in this uh, seminar series, as you as you would have seen, um, and so and she, you know she charts this like history of failure actually within technological development, particularly around drones um, and and of you know programs that get money and go nowhere, that that attempt to build things that never fly, that um, you know so on and so forth, and um, you know the I was struck reading that book too about um, uh, about you know. Um, reading about the development of network technologies within the US military and just you know how limited actually the networked and surveillance capacities of the military were like right up until um 9/11 and even into the kind of post 9/11 era that like the sheer bandwidth capacity for instance of the US military was incredibly limited um and you know drone drones are one of the key technologies that kind of pushed an expansion of of the net, of net, networked capacity, um, which kind of runs counter a bit to the to the picture we have of of like the all seeing, all knowing um, military eye, and and I think in particular of you know films like um, Enemy of the State from the nineties, right, which is like this kind of uh, a really interesting kind of text of of 
surveillance in the state and you know it's it, the the um you know the state can see everywhere all the time grabbing video and so on um but of course at that time like <laughs> the the technological capacity for this was like basically non non-existent um and yet that's the kind of imaginary that keeps yeah. being keeps being pushed forward and of course you know the drone is the, the par excellence example of the rma the revolution in military affairs and the kind of post-war post-cold war science that emerges into the into the 21st century it makes me think based on what you're saying you know that those early obama years when there were so many exposés about the the drone operator you know living in nevada or colorado i don't know if that was true in, in australian media but certainly in the u.s context there was um some there was a lot of pr being done for for drone technologies in those early years and it, it makes you think like, was this a, a, a PR messaging campaign in addition to the, the shift between Bush and Obama, you know, in those early years and the surgical precision? And of course, we know that Trump in the context of, you know, I, my book sort of ends, the conclusion epilogue is about the sort of emergence of Trumpism as both harbinger and, and architect of the forever war. But it ends with the reminder that Trump has really exacerbated and amplified every site of forever war making, right? And we're not getting a lot of stories about drones in the US media anymore. It's like you don't see New York Magazine or New York Times or New Yorker ever profile any discussion of drones. And it's happening at a clip um, that's exponential compared to those early years of the Obama administration. So that's just something to note about what we see and don't see and how that maps on um, to those debates. Yeah, I think um, in Australia, a lot of what we see of the of drone war is that it is something very far away, um, and Australian complicities in that process, um, which are not just ambient and uh, political, but material through our role within the um, signals um, architecture of of global military networks, um, were kind of important uh, in in uh, in that um, network actually because of where we sit geographically. Um, so there's a base at Pine Gap that is pretty crucial to a lot of uh, drone military operations, um, and Australia is actually developing. Um, uh, some uh, like attack drones, like drone fighter pilot drone oh, wow. not fighter pilots, uh, drone fighter jets. But but this too occasions very little um, debate and discussion. It, the question I have for you is just, is to kind of invite you to think into the future a little bit. And I think you know thinking into the future is a fraught proposition at times, and it's something that maybe um, we might want to be tentative about. Um, but you know thinking into the future and imagining. Um, and better futures is part of how we build and organize towards them, right? What are the, what are the kind of trajectories perhaps that might unfold for an, an insurgent aesthetics as we move into this next decade of war? Goodness. Um, yeah, that's a big question. And let me take a little sliver of it, just a crumb on this corner of that, which is to say that we've reached the tipping point now with drones, where for many years we talked about the potential boomerang effect of drone warfare, that these were military technologies that were being innovated and experimented on the laboratories of US empire in AFPAC and the greater Middle East, right? But that eventually it was coming home to roost. And my goodness, you know, this year of 2020 has given us so many instantiations, so many examples of the way that US imperial violence out there, you know, far, far away is being revitalized and reamplified here in the domestic sphere. And the reason I mentioned that is because for many years here in Chicago, I've been learning from and organizing with 
uh, my colleagues, primarily black feminist colleagues who work on questions of abolition and have tried to think about the US domestic and international context of war making in synergetic, synergetic relations to try to marry the conversations which are often too siloed about what's happening domestically versus what's happening globally. And we know that prisons and policing, and we know that military and policing are two sides of the same coin of global repression and global cap racial capitalism for us. And we know that we say that analytically, we talk about joint struggles, shared histories, all of that. But I think the fact that any day now, um, those CBP and that's Custom and Border Patrol helicopters and drones that have been surveilling the border here at the US-Mexico border for many years. Um, the fact that more and more of them are starting to show up in our cities on the in the northern parts of the United States, including places like Chicago, and that they're being used to profile and surveil um, and target the south and west side of my city, for for instance, um, that the conversation, the drone is going to be the, the sort of suture that allows us to talk about the imperial circuits of violence that we've been all talking about for years, but that it's going to be visible in, in our in our homes. And I just will note, you know, finally, and I know time is running out to say that, you know, a couple of days ago, I went on my evening walk is because that's what we do now, right? We go on an evening walk to get out of the house um, in quarantine. And there was a helicopter sort of buzzing, hovering over my neighborhood. It happens summertime, certainly in Chicago on the Northwest side. Um, but it was the day of the Lebanon bombings in Beirut. And of course, so that was on my mind and friends and colleagues and comrades um, who are processing the devastation of what happened this week or past week in Beirut and the, the buzzing sound of the drones, which I've written about. And I talk about the affective quality and the sensorial quality of, of the helicopter, right? Um, as being a kind of new dystopian every day that suddenly on my evening walk, that's the, that was the sound. And it just, it was a reminder. And I think it's part of what Bilal was trying to do a decade ago, ago about the comfort zones and the conflict zones and the way that he sort of talked about that um, as being distant, but also quite proximate. We're seeing the proximity, all of that kind of remote intimacy is coming home to roost in ways that are profoundly um, de destabilizing, but that I think will also create the conditions of possibility for new forms of coalition and alliance and insurgency. So that's my hope. Uh, for the near future and near term around the question of drones futures. I'd love to end on a on a on a hopeful note. Um, we so rarely get to get to do that in these kinds of conversations. Um, and I think that's yeah, really beautifully put. Really appreciate you being with us and for kicking off this um, seminar series. So stay safe, everybody, uh, stay strong and take care of one another. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody out there in the world. And what a what, one of the unintended consequences of this quarantine and virtual intimacies means that we get to be in conversation in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So I'm really grateful to you and thank you to your whole team. I appreciate it. And that's it for another episode of Drone Futures, a limited series on the Media Futures podcast. For more info about the Drone Futures series, visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review and subscribe. It really does help new listeners find us and spread the word too. Special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen-McKinnon and to our research assistant, the brilliant Madeleine Weber. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Australian Research Council. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.